All right, I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. It's good to be here in the middle of the week. Elections are over. Yay! That's a good thing. Um, Need to keep praying for our country, that's for sure. Uh, I will open up in prayer and then we will uh, finish up our study tonight on the doctrines of salvation, doctrines of grace that we've been studying about. We've got some questions. And uh, come forward on. Come on down. Come on down. Here, come on down. I got a dirty pass in my pocket. Okay, yeah. Turn that in. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this evening and the time that we have together. We're talking about salvation and the way that you have designed to save men and women from their sins and how it brings You glory, and it's for our good. And I just pray that tonight You would uh, bless this message as it goes forth and encourage Your people in a very special way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, let me... Uh, this uh, number right here is our text line. It is only for questions, so don't text it thinking you're going to get an answer from somebody. And I've already got a number of questions, but if something comes up that you failed to send out, you could still do that, and I'll try to check it before the night is over. Uh, We are talking about the doctrines of salvation, how the Bible presents God's plan of saving us from our sins. And so we've gone through five or six nights of this, we begin with the fact that mankind is ruined by sin. We are all born sinners. And there's no exceptions in this room. We're all born sinners. We can all say a hearty, yeah, amen, I'm a sinner. Um, the Bible says we're ruined by sin. I think we don't realize what sin actually does to us. The Bible says that it alienates us from God. It puts us under the wrath of God. It, um, When you are separated from God, you are unable to do anything. You can't remedy the situation. There's nothing you can do for your sin. So, in the midst of humanity being born in sin, if you have little children, you know they're born in sin. They, you don't have to... I have three precious granddaughters. And one's, you know, two. And, you know, the other day she was with her cousin and she, you know, kind of screamed and went, ah, like she was going to whack her. And it's like, where did that come from? It's, uh, she's not even three years old yet. And she's just being selfish. It was because her little cousin was going to play with one of her toys that she was playing with. It's this inherently sinful nature we're born with. And as we get older, it only becomes more apparent. Now, some people are able to mask it more than others, but we're born in sin. In the midst of sinful humanity, the Bible says that because of sin, we don't pursue the things of God, we don't want the things of God, we don't understand the things of God. In that fact, God chooses to save some people. He says, I'm going to have mercy on some. Even though they're running from me, even though they're alien from me, I'm going to save some. And they're called the elect. That's what the Bible uses. They've been chosen by God. It's a remarkable thing that God chooses to save some in spite of their sin, in spite of their rebellion. Uh, Then 
we looked at the redemption. Those that Christ, God chose, Jesus died on the cross and paid for their sins. That there was a sacrifice that God made for my sin. And that sacrifice was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're going to celebrate in a few months the birth of Jesus Christ. And it was at His birth that it was announced by the angels, He shall save His people from their sins. And He did that when He, 30 years later, was crucified and buried uh, in a tomb in Palestine. And on the third day, He was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead because the payment that He made was sufficient for the sins. No more payment. God says, that's it. It's done. There's nothing more that could could atone for sins. The blood of Jesus Christ paid for our sins. Then we looked at the role that the Holy Spirit has in our salvation. We are born sinful. We live our lives doing our own thing, but God sends His Spirit and He draws us. He works in our lives. He convicts us of sin. You can live a life and not even know you're a sinner. It's so much part of who you are. You don't think anything wrong of it. But when the Spirit of God begins to work on a person, they experience the conviction of sin. They're like, this is wrong. There's guilt. People can drink away their guilt. They can do drugs for their guilt. They can do everything they can to medicate the guilt. But it doesn't go away. When the Spirit of God convicts, and the Spirit of God, the Bible says, regenerates. It means causes us to be born again. I just talked to a guy tonight. He's going to share his testimony with us Thanksgiving Eve. But he was sharing how God changed him. He was born again. He was enslaved to sin and to alcohol. His most of his all of almost all of his adult life and he's gone to every program and gone to every thing and he was still enslaved to sin. But the night that he just couldn't do it any longer, he said he front yard he just fell. I'm not gonna share his story. He's gonna let him do that. But he was born again. He means he was changed. The Spirit of God draws those that he's chosen. And then last week we looked at the doctrine that those people who God chooses and Christ dies for and the Spirit draws, they can never ever lose their salvation. There's no way. They are kept by the power of God. So these are the doctrines of salvation that we've been studying back over the over the last several weeks. And tonight what I want to do is just talk about some of the implications of these doctrines. And then um, can, let's not make them there's some chairs. You're going to have to come all the way up to the front. Um, I want to talk about some of the implications of these doctrines, and then I'll get into some of the questions, because there's some really good questions that people have had, and if, if something comes to your mind, you can, you can still use that number, and I'll try to check it at the end. So as we spent the last six weeks or so talking about these doctrines, some of the things that come out of that, when you begin to really understand these doctrines, one of the first things that should become most apparent is that grace really becomes special. Anybody that has spent any amount of time in a church has sung Amazing Grace. I mean, that's just part of our culture. But how many people sing that song and they really have no idea what they're singing? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
when you understand those doctrines of salvation, you begin to understand that grace really is amazing. I mean, it is truly amazing. I know for me, I, I, I use the word grace, you know, I knew it, but when I begin to understand these doctrines of salvation, I was in awe of grace. I mean, then it was really grace for me. So, these they're called the doctrines of grace because each doctrine just lays out the manifold grace of God. Another thing that comes through the doctrines of grace is that in these doctrines, God is highly exalted. Um, the doctrines of grace teach the majesty of the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the grace of God. I mean, God gets all the glory. When we go, when we went, we spent six weeks talking about those doctrines. The only part we had in them is the sin part, the running part, being alienated from God. Uh, everything else He did. Everything else He has done in my life for me, He gets all the glory from them. So I remember when I began to understand these doctrines, and I've shared before, but it was the first time, even though I grew up in church, grew up in a Christian home, when I understood these doctrines, it was the first time I genuinely got down on my face, on my knees before God and said, you're God, I'm not. And it was a very humbling experience to just recognize God really becomes God. The doctrines of grace, thirdly for me, really became the backbone of my security as a believer. I've shared before that I struggled with eternal security much of my life. Uh, early on, eternal security, what, what I mean by that is you once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. That never really made sense to me. I just didn't understand. I, I, I believe the Bible taught it, but it just didn't experience that. But when I came to understand the doctrines of grace, that formed for me. All of a sudden, I understood security. I understood what it meant to, to be kept by God. When I recognize my depravity, I'm a sinner. The only thing I contribute to my salvation is the transgression and rebellion against God. But then the grace of God in my election, God choosing me, Christ dying for my sins, the Holy Spirit drawing me to myself, God doing all these things, then it is not a big step for me to understand that God, who saved me by grace, will keep me by grace also. And that that was just so freeing for me. Just sometimes, and I think it's unwittingly, we go to church and we hear a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts, and we hear, oh, we're saved by grace, but it's almost like then you stay saved by works. And that's just not the case. You're kept by grace the whole way through. Um, there have been times where I've wandered from the Lord. There have been times that I've fallen into sin, but I have experienced God's keeping power, where He doesn't let me stay there. I'm too miserable, or I've felt His hand press down upon me. All of that is God keeps me. I, I think it was John Piper, it might have been John MacArthur. One of them said, if we could lose our salvation, I would have already lost it. I'd lose it every day. There's no way I could keep my salvation. And when I look at the doctrines of grace, I don't keep my salvation. God keeps me and, and keeps me saved. A couple of other areas that is, I think, just has a really profound effect upon us. 
it has a profound effect upon how a church does business or how a church operates. Churches that understand the doctrines of grace should operate fundamentally different than what is going on in, in the world. In the last 30 years or so, if not more, the church was operating under this church growth movement. And, and the, the principles of a church growth movement are this, that we need to be lights to the world. We need to get unchurched people into the church. Now, how do we get unchurched people into the church? Well, we, we, we need to make our services so that unchurched people like them. They become almost entertainment-oriented. They become to the point where you want to get people in, and then what you do is you have to be careful because you want to keep them, so then you water down the message because you don't want to offend anybody, because you want to reach the unchurched. And then it can get into some really dangerous places. You end up having sermons that are nothing more than little sermonettes, little feel-good, buzzy stuff that we're supposed to all, you know, oh, that's, that's nice, but there's no real proclamation of God's truth and word because the fact of the matter is God's word is offensive. It, it confronts us, and we are exposed. That's what Hebrews says, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it slices us open. And so, under the church growth movement, we've tried to dull the sword. We're like, oh, we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. And so, we even changed our songs. Like, well, we don't want to sing about blood because people don't understand blood. That's, that's crude. Um, uh, my son went to a church when he was in the military on the East Coast, and they were serving communion. And, you know, we serve communion, we serve grape juice because it's to symbolize the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the church was serving white grape juice because red was too much like blood and they didn't want to offend people so they just used white grape juice. And it's just, it's that kind of nonsense where we're afraid of, of that. If you understand the doctrines of grace, you realize that the attraction, people being attracted is not through human means, it's through the Spirit of God attracting and that salvation isn't by making people feel good and then so they don't think the message is too offensive so they accept it, but they hear the truth and the Spirit of God takes the truth that is offensive and it changes their hearts and minds. So when you understand the doctrines of grace, then like if you come to our church on Sunday, we don't design services to reach or to attract the unchurched. This church is the gathering of God's people. We're supposed to feed God's people and they go out into the world and be lights to the world. They preach the gospel. So we come here. So if it, it, it has to do even with our evangelism. Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel when we preach that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, that He was buried and raised on the third day, when that message goes out that the Son of God 
came to earth as a man and He died on the cross for our sins. He was put to death. He was buried. But God raised Him from the dead. And those who believe in Him, those who look to Him and trust Him, God saves. God says He takes that message and that message is the power of God to salvation. He uses that message to save people. He doesn't need me to say it smoothly. He doesn't need me to say it with you know, all the right grammar, because I often mess up grammar terribly. I don't have to pronunciate it always right. I don't have to have a prepared speech. The power of God is not in me, it's in the Gospel itself. And I don't have to prime the pump for people and and try to get the music right or get the, the, the choir to sing songs that get people kind of in an emotional mood so that they'll be a little more ready to receive the message. I don't have to manipulate people because God's Spirit is the one that does that. So that I can relax. I love 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, we have this treasure in this earthen vessel that the power is not of us, but of God. That's our treasure. So when you are sharing Christ with someone, you have this treasure. All you have to do is share Christ and you leave the rest to God. He works, he works through the Gospel. So, enormous burdens can be lifted off the evangelist. I just proclaim the message and and God does the rest. Um, I know it's had a profound effect on our church and how we do church and why we do church differently than many other churches do. Because salvation is a work of God. It is not the result of man's manipulation. It's not the mean, it's not using fleshly means to try to manipulate people. And I've shared stories of pastors that have tried to manipulate people into believing the gospel. And at the end of the day, if you're manipulated into believing the gospel, gospel do, you, do you think that is going to matter a hill of beans when you stand before God? I was just talking to somebody this, this last week, and they sent their daughter to a, uh, a, a VBS last year. And uh, they came back, and, and one of the VBS workers said, Oh, did your daughter tell you we, she became a Christian? And he's, he's like, No. And, and the long of the story of short is that the daughter was placed in this room where she was basically pressured to say the prayer. And she didn't want to do it, but she was forced. That's not how the gospel works. How many people have been in that situation or come forward and raise your hand and there's all these things that we do when God works in people's hearts and He changes them and they hear the message. They're convicted of their sin. They believe in Jesus and they're saved. So it has a profound effect. Well, let me get to some of the questions that were given to me. And if you have some others that come up, you're welcome to run them by. I've got one, two, three, four, five. That doesn't sound like a lot, but they're pretty pretty hefty. Let me just start with the first one here. Is there any way to know who God's people are? Is it the church? That's That's a really good question. Is there any way to know who God's people are? Because there's the people of God and they're not the people of God. And there's all kinds of ways that people try to identify the people of God. Some people try to identify through church membership or baptism. or is it, How do we know who the people of God are? And the question, is it the church? Well, 
the church is where the people of God are supposed to be. But the Bible, Jesus told, tells us in Matthew 13, He gave us a parable about a field. And if you remember what He says in Matthew 13, in the field there is wheat and there is tares. And I, we're not a farming community. I grew up with wheat. I know this about wheat and tares. They look identical. They're both green. You can't tell them apart. So in a church, there can be people that aren't Christians, but they're there and they look just like the other Christians. One of the, the biggest differences between wheat and tares is wheat bear fruit, tares never do. So bearing fruit is an important part, but how do you know who the people of God are? And there's really only one standard, one, one ultimate standard. There's no special marking on us. We don't dress a certain way. That's not what distinguishes. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's who the people of God are. He's set apart a new people. Those people who trust Jesus Christ, who believe in Him for salvation alone, they are the people of God. And it's by faith in Christ that we know who the true people of God are. So um, that's that's a really good question. Here's a one that gets a little more difficult. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 6, you can. Some of you might already know where that's going. This is in question regarding the one Marty did, Hebrews uh, on the perseverance of the saints upon our eternal security. They said, in light of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, did this person lose their salvation or not? So let's read verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. It is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God. Well, here's a couple of observations we can make from this text. If this text is teaching that we can lose our salvation, it teaches it can only happen once. Now, that isn't necessarily encouraging, but many people who believe you can lose your salvation, believe, oh, you can get saved again, and you lose it, and you save it, and, you get it, and that's not scriptural. That's, it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. The other thing we have to notice is the way this person is described and the remarkable experience these people, this person has had spiritually. Those people who have once been enlightened. The Bible speaks about the world in darkness. They're blind. They cannot see. These people have been enlightened. I mean, that's like they understand. So that's... They've heard the Gospel... They understand the Gospel. And then it says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. This is, I mean, this the gift of God, the goodness of God. They've tasted it. And they have 
shared in the Holy Spirit. That's very, very powerful language. Shared in the Holy Spirit. Meaning they have the Holy Spirit has been working in their lives. The Holy Spirit has been ministering. They understand. They've tasted the good. Maybe they've heard sermons and they've got all goosebumpy. Um, said amen in a sermon. They've shared in the in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been working on their life. But if they then fall away, that's the word for apostatize. It says it's impossible to restore them. We conclude that regardless of all these experiences that this person had, they were never truly saved. Now, let me unpack that for a minute. We might immediately say, oh, okay, good. This doesn't teach you can lose your salvation. These people were never truly saved. And then we kind of go on. But that's not the intention of the writer to say, oh, these people aren't truly saved, so don't worry about it if you're really saved. The intention of the writer is to say, this person has had incredible spiritual experiences and they fell away. It is used to be a warning to us. You don't just judge your relationship because, oh, well, when I was eight, I... You know, I was baptized and I went forward. Or I, you know, I know I'm a Christian because one time God, you know, spoke to me or whatever. These people fell away and they had incredible spiritual experiences, but they did not persevere. The word apostatize is not they tripped up and fell and you know. No, apostasy is to reject, is to turn away, is to repudiate. So they had these incredible experiences. They understood the gospel. They saw the Spirit of God work, maybe in, in, in a congregation. They heard testimonies of God changing their lives. They felt goosebumps. And, and then at some point in their life, they reject it. They say, no. And they walk away from it. This text says it is impossible to restore them to repentance. So it really serves for us who know Christ not to say, well, I don't have to worry about that because I know I'm truly saved. It's no. People can have all kinds of experiences and, and walk away. I need to diligently hold on to Christ all the time. Keep trusting Christ because that's really the message of Hebrews that you should endure, persevere in the faith. In fact, if we were to read the, the remaining part of chapter 6, the author of Hebrews says, we have better things that you, are, you will um, hold on to the full assurance until the very end that you're not going to walk away. So this is a warning passage and we would have to conclude based upon other parts of Scripture that this person didn't lose their salvation for they were never truly saved. What is striking is how close to salvation they really were. And the world might be littered with these individuals who have heard the truth so many times and then finally just they just walk away. So... Uh, it's a very, very difficult passage, a very serious passage that we should consider. So hopefully that helps you. Um, 
to to understand. But there are so many passages of Scripture that say we cannot lose our salvation, that we have to understand coming to this. This has to be one of our presuppositions. And yet the writer here goes out of his way to highlight the experiences this person had with the... uh, with the with salvation with with God working in their life. All right, here's a third question. This is a good question. Does God love everybody unconditionally? This has to do with when we talked about the atonement John 3:16 for God so loved the world. And we talked about God's unique love for the church for the elect. And John 3:16 says God loves sinners. So he asked, does God love everybody unconditionally? This is a question that the world seems to have already readily answered. I mean, we hear this message all the time from everywhere, and it wouldn't be a surprise. Oh, yeah, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you no matter what you're... He doesn't care who you are. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Well, there is some truth to that fact. God does love the world. Now, I'm... I don't know because I don't know exactly, but he says unconditionally. What does unconditionally mean? Does God love everyone unconditionally? If by that we're saying, does God love people that are good more and people that do really bad less, then I would say, no, it's unconditional. God loves the world. It's not based upon it. Because when it says world, world does it refers to unregenerate, sinful people. So in that sense, it's not based upon conditions. Let me add this. There are places in Scripture that God says He hates the sinner. The sinner. Proverbs, when it talks about the seven sins that God hates, it doesn't actually say the actual sins. It says He hates the tongue that lies. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. So God does hate the sinner. At the same time, God is so infinitely complex, He can love and hate at the same time. I don't, I, I, I don't have any other way to say it, but God can hate and love. In fact, I believe it's God, God's love that keeps His hate and His anger and His just wrath at bay because He in love is showing mercy. He's, he's withholding the, the hatred and the anger towards the sin. But the Bible says that God loves the world. So in that sense, unconditionally. Now, I think another question would be, does God love everyone equally? And we'd have to say, no, He doesn't love everyone equally. It's it's impossible to come away believing God loves everyone equally. Because when He talks to Christians in Rome, He says, to the ones beloved of God in Rome, well, if he loved everybody in Rome, that would mean nothing. Oh yeah, I'm just like one. I'm just like one of the other citizens. You love me? No, God loves His people in a special way. That's the essence of marriage. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. So God loves us in a very special, unique way, in a way that He does not love everybody else. Another question would be this: Does God love everyone eternally? And the answer would have to be no. He does not love everyone eternally. That is the unique love God has for the believer. It is with an everlasting love. An everlasting love. A love that doesn't ever fail. When the Bible speaks about hell and the wrath of God, it speaks of it as wrath 
unmixed. There's no grace in it. There's no mercy in it. There's no kindness in it. It will be the full fury of the wrath of God. It is a terrifying thing to be under the wrath of God. And it will not be love. The essence of hell will be under the wrath of God with no love, no mercy, no kindness, no grace. The full wrath of God Almighty. Today, God is loving the world and mercy restraining His wrath. But the Bible says there is coming a day when that will end and He will pour out His wrath. It will overwhelm, consume the, the wicked Listen to Revelation 14.10. Just, just the language here is just so striking. Um, this is referring to those who follow the beast and, and uh, receive the mark on the forehead, which the Bible says the whole world will. It says, verse 10, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger full strength. It's not going to be diluted with mercy or kindness or compassion or love. Full wrath of God, which should be terrifying to anybody who thinks they could face the wrath of God. I've experienced the anger of God, but it's always been mixed with kindness and mercy and grace. But to face the full wrath of fury of God without any love is terrifying, and that is what awaits those who do not repent and call on Jesus' name. But the Bible does tell us that God loves the world. He loves lost people. I just want to give you one more example because I didn't do this. Turn your Bibles to Mark 10. It's just another, it's an example of Jesus loving a lost person. If you've ever wondered, can you tell someone God loves them? Can you tell them that Jesus loves you? I still hear people sometimes where they just kind of hedge like, I don't, I don't know if I can or not. I hope you can. I really do. Because, you know, the Gospel goes out and it's the love of God that draws people. You you are loved of God. Mark 10, verse 21. It's the story of the rich young ruler who basically, and I'm not going to read the whole story if you, you know it, he walks away from salvation. He just walked away from it. He didn't want to count the cost. In verse 21, uh, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. That just gives me chills. Because this guy walks away. Jesus loved him and He told him the truth. You know what you lack? You, your heart is set on the idolatry of your money and possessions. You, you kill that and turn from that and follow Me, you'll have eternal life. And He walked away, but it said Jesus loved him. Jesus loves the world. God loves the world. I want to take you back real quickly to John 3.16. Well, we, we know it by heart, but John 3.16, For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. When I read that, it's easy to think, like, if I said something like, Lori, I love you so much. It could be talking about the quality. You know, like, I love you so much. So when I read John 3, he says, For God so loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son. That's possible. But the Holman Christian Bible uh, translates it rather uniquely, but I think more accurately. It says this. Let me quote it so I don't get it wrong. Uh, or did I? Oh, did I? 
Yes. Whew. John 3.16, Holman Christian Standard Bible. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish. How does God love the world? It's not, oh, you're okay, you're nice, doesn't matter, I love you just the way you are. This is how God loves the world. He gave His Son to die on the cross so that whoever, all the believing ones who believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's how God loved the world. He gave His Son. It's not a sentimental, gushy love. It's like, oh, you're okay. God loves you. Don't worry about it. He loved you and He gave His Son. He says, believe on Him. That's where God's love is manifested to us. All right. Here's a fourth one. We're doing all right. How do we read or interpret John 3.16 in light of election and the doctrines of grace? Um, And I've kind of overlapped there, but how do we read or interpret John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Is there such a thing as the unpardonable sin in the New Covenant? Wouldn't you say that any unbeliever has opportunity to repent prior to death regardless of sin that they commit? That's a really good question. Um, Is there such a thing as unpardonable sin in the New Covenant? Um, I I believe there is, but it it would be very difficult to say who's who's committed it. Um, I believe that the unpardonable sin, and I talked about this, I Sometimes I feel like I preach so often I forget what I even said or when I said it. I talked about the unpardonable sin a while back and that I believe that the unpardonable sin is rejecting the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God is working. So you're hearing the truth and there is this force in your life. You know like that's true. That's true. This is real. And then you reject it. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you, if you blaspheme, reject the Holy Spirit, there is no pardon for that. There's no other way to get saved. It's the Spirit that causes us to be saved. It's the Spirit that convicts. And if you reject that, I don't think the unpardonable sin is adultery. I don't think it's homosexuality. I don't think it's murder. I don't think it's any of those things. I think it is the super... Because Jesus uses this in the context of He is doing mighty miracles in the midst of these unbelieving Jews. They are seeing Jesus do these things. There is something in them going, this is the Son of God. And they say, no, you're the devil. They have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and you do that, and there's no hope for you. Now, I don't believe that's synonymous with somebody hearing the gospel and not responding right away. I, the the young man that are, the guy that I was talking with this before church, I mean, there were eight or nine years God is working on his life, ups and downs and ins and outs before he finally comes to Christ. I believe this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, is this blatant denial and rejection of Jesus Christ and His atonement and His and who He is. Um, to answer the question further, Hebrews says today is the day of salvation. As long as it's today and you're breathing, you have an opportunity to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and I would urge anybody to do that. I, if somebody, I've had several people come to me concerned that they had committed the unpardonable sin. And you know, my answer would be, well, if you're living right now and breathing, today is the day of salvation. Call right now upon the name of the Lord. So I, I would always agree. And I've, 
Well, that's an, that's another thing. Uh, also, John three sixteen. I think John three sixteen fits perfectly in the doctrines of grace. It expresses the general love that God has for uh, the world. It's that's what the gospel is rooted in. But it is John three sixteen that narrows it. It starts out with the world. God loves the world, but then it narrows it. Now we it says whosoever in most of our translations, but literally in the Greek it's all the believing ones, or every believing one. All who believe. Now that, that doesn't exclude anybody, but it's just saying the believing ones, they will not be condemned. So immediately, instead of just saying, God loved the world, He gave His Son, and the whole world will not be condemned, that's not what it says. It says God loved the world, the believing ones will not be condemned. Well, that's exactly what we say. It's through faith in Christ. And the ones that believe are the ones that God's Spirit works in. And so we, we see this limiting, if you will, of the atonement in John 3.16 that starts off so general, so universal, but it's limited, the application is limited to the one who believes. There's no condemnation for them. So I think that's a, a good question. Um, here's number five, and I don't know how many of you this is an issue for, um, but it has been an issue for some. And it, Do babies who die go to heaven? Um, instinctively, most people... Well, actually, most people think everybody goes to heaven. You, you read obituaries... People die, they're in a better place. Everybody just assumes they can do no religion at all, nothing. But when people die, it's just generally assumed everybody goes to heaven. So because a baby dies, of course everybody goes to heaven. Well, that's just plain unbiblical. I mean, that's just, it's not the fact. Now, I'm not saying that I don't know people who are, but I'm just saying not everybody goes to heaven. The question is when babies who die, when do they go to heaven? Basically, I've discussed, there's four options. No would be they go to hell because they're infected with sin. Because we say that we're born in sin. We were born sinners. B would be no or yes. If they are baptized, they go to heaven. That's largely Roman Catholicism. Uh, we, When we lived uh, up north, we had some neighbors and they were Roman Catholic. Very, very sweet family. And their uh, cousin or whatever had a baby and... Uh, the baby died in the hospital and she called my wife and said, you know, we've got to go get that baby and baptize that baby. Will you help me go get that baby? Because in her mind, that baby would not go to heaven unless it was baptized. It needed to be sprinkled. And um, uh, that's the cat. Then they have limbo for babies that die without being baptized and they're in the state I don't know if it's some state of purification or not, but that's another answer that people give. There is a third answer that people often give, and that is that only children of believers go to heaven. Um, and there are a couple of places that seem to indicate that. And then the last answer would be all babies go to heaven. Namely, if all babies go to heaven, then all babies are elect. And that is my position. Um, I am very confident in this for a number of reasons, not just to feel good. I, I hope 
that I've been honest with you in places in Scripture that have been tough and say, this is what it says, I don't understand it, but from my understanding of Scripture, I believe it's it's very clear that all babies go to heaven. I am 100% sure that babies of believers go to heaven. I, one of the places, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, there's a marriage and only one of the spouses is Christian. And Paul, and we'll, we'll explore this when we go through Corinthians, but Paul says stay together because the believing spouse makes holy the family, makes holy the children. And what does that mean? We'll go in it, but the indication is that there is a covering of a believing spouse and a family over that family. David, when he lost his son because of his sin, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, when he found out that the baby died, he said, he's not going to come to me, but I will go to him. Uh, I don't think he was just saying, I'll meet him in the grave and we'll just be in the dirt together. I think he's, I will go with him. He's not coming back, but I will be with him again. And I think he was underscoring that he would be with his son in the eternal state. Um, the Arminian doctrine that does not believe in original sin would state that all babies go to heaven when they die because they're not sinful. And, and in some degree, that could be comforting, like, oh, there's no sin in them, so of course they're going to go to heaven. Um, but then the question is, what about a two- or three-year-old um, who clearly have sin nature being manifested? Uh, they have drawn this very uh, arbitrary age of accountability, like there's at some point where there's this age of accountability, and after that age of accountability, then they go to go to uh, hell if they die. I, uh, as a church, we teach that babies are not born free of sin. They're not born with a blank slate. They're born with a sin nature. We just know that by experience. When I come to this answer, um, I have to acknowledge that we're dealing with a subject that the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about. It doesn't address it specifically. It doesn't give us a doctrine. But if we focus on what we know, I believe we come to some pretty strong confirmations. In issues like this, one of the first things I completely am at rest with, and this is just where it starts for me, I take absolute comfort in the rock-solid assurance God is good and He never does anything unjust. Ever. I just know that. If God does it, it is good, it is right. Even if I don't agree, I I believe that God is good and there is no injustice in Him whatsoever. I know that. But I believe that babies do go to heaven and it's not because they're free of sin. I believe they're sinners. I believe they go to heaven the same way we go to heaven. It is because of election and grace. There is no other way and the blood of Jesus Christ. There's some verses that I think insinuate this. I'm going to read to you. Actually, Charles Spurgeon devoted a whole Sunday morning service to sermon to this topic infant salvation. This was in 1861. 
I'm going to just read a couple of paragraphs. This is something he said, and he was a strong Calvinist, but he was emphatic about this. Now let every mother and father here present know assuredly that it is well with the child if God hath taken it away from you in its infant days. You may have never heard its declaration of faith. It was not capable of such a thing. It was not baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ nor buried with Him in baptism. It was not capable of giving that answer of a good conscience towards God. Nevertheless, you may rest assured that it is well with the child. Well in a higher and better sense than it is with well with yourselves. Well without limitation. Well without exception. Well infinitely. Well, eternally. Perhaps you will say, what reasons have we for believing that it is well with the child? And he just added this, before I enter upon those reasons, let me make one observation. It has been wickedly, lyingly, and slanderously said of Calvinists that we believe that some little children perish. Those who make the accusation know that their charge is false. And that is, you hear that, oh, you're a Calvinist, you believe babies go to hell. It's tragic. If babies go to heaven, it will be because, not because they're sinless, it will be because of election, it will be not of works, but of grace. One of the places, a couple of texts that really are informative to me, and this is one I learned from Charles Spurgeon, he quotes Matthew twenty-one sixteen, and uh this is where Jesus is going into Jerusalem and they're all crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they said to Him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And Spurgeon asked, Have you ever heard an infant nursing babe praise God? I haven't. They're either eating or sleeping or messing with their diaper, but never praising. And he says there's one place where they're praising God, in heaven. He said that's God has ordained praise from the mouth of nursing infants. Um, another reason for me that has become very, very solid for me in standing on this. So when you look in the Bible when it speaks about God judging the wicked, whether even in the Old Testament, numerous in the Gospels, Revelation when you're standing before the right uh, the white great white throne judgment. Every time I don't want to say every time, but when it speaks about God judging the wicked, it always says He judged them according to the works that they did. He judged them according to their sins, their evil deeds. Not some mystical just condemnation, but no. You did this evil, that evil, this evil. He judges perfect justice. He renders judgment according to their evil deeds. A, a infant has no evil deeds. They are... They're not capable of making willful, sinful actions. There would be nothing for God to judge. So, in many ways, when the Bible says also the redemption, Revelation 5 says there will be some from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. I take that to be of all history, not just the New Testament. 
I believe there are going to be Amorites in the kingdom of God and Hittites and Jebusites. They were outside of the covenant of Israel and the only way that could possibly be is if those babies that died and those tribes and peoples would be represented in heaven. And so uh, I take great comfort. God is good. Whatever He does is just. There's no injustice in Him. He's ordained praise from the mouth of nursing babes and He judges men according to their works. And He has promised to redeem some from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So I am a strong believer that babies do go to heaven because of the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ um, through and by the election of God alone. That is all that I have. Let me just quickly say, I've got a couple here. When and how does an infant? Oh, okay, yeah, okay. When and how does an infant move from elect to potentially not elect? And how do we know if three, four, five, or six years old is still elect? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's an impossible question to answer. I just know if they're elect, they're elect, and God doesn't monkey with the numbers. He doesn't change or not change, and we get into very hypothetical situations in which we don't know. But as our children, you know, as parents, I think a very practical application of this question, which is probably where it's coming from, is, you know, our children, we take great peace. If something were to happen to them, they're with the Lord. But when they're seven, when they're eight, when they're nine, and we more and more see the the sin nature in them, you know, what what about then? And are are they elect then or not? And I I will say, if they are elect, they will come to Christ. And trust me, I've had four four boys in many nights of agony, praying, realizing again, this it's all how you perceive election. Some people think election keeps people out. For me, election is what gets anybody in. And so, knowing that God must elect, I pray, God, You must reach down and touch. They're too much like their father. They're too stubborn, too headstrong. You must save them. And so, uh, I use election as a tool in my prayer. Not to keep anyone from it but as the way of bringing, bringing them in. So uh, it's a very good question. And there's, there's even other questions like, well, if that happens, we should all be for abortion because everybody goes to heaven. And, you know, I am not philosophical in my thinking. And, of course, I'm against abortion. Abortion is murder. Um, but in the mercy of God, I believe we have him intervening in these horrific atrocities that is happening in our, in our land. Um, in God's sight are we equal with Israel Um, in God's sight are we equal with Israel in God's sight are we equal with Israel I don't know if this person is talking about the nation of Israel or um, but the people of God actually someone had asked me this earlier on uh, who's spiritual Israel the people of God are Israel they are the true people of God. And so if you are a Christian, you are the true Israel of God. There's just... So, uh, now, if you're... 
there is ethnic Israel. They are there is still, I believe, God has a role and He has a plan to to incorporate the, a portion of ethnic Israel into. We've been talking about that and into true Israel, but. To be in true Israel is to be loved. Uh, to be in ethnic Israel, you may be under the judgment and wrath of God. Many in ethnic Israel will perish and will never truly be saved. So um, I, I hope that answers your your question. Um, can Proverbs uh, 6.17... Uh, let's see if what Proverbs 6.17 says. I should know that. I'm a preacher. Proverbs 6.17... There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Can Proverbs 6.17 be applied to this topic? Um, I'm not sure I understand the topic of... Can you apply it to infant death? Infant death. Um, Is there any way to correlate that as far as election, salvation for an unborn child as it pertains to that verse. In that, like, God hates the hands that... Oh, oh, innocent, I see, that shed innocent blood. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I would say specifically innocent blood here would be not saying this person is sinless, but that this was a victim. They, you know, they were murdered unlawfully, so they're innocent. But because a lot of people apply that to the abortion issue. And well, is and it, I think that's applicable. Okay. Yeah, I absolutely think that's applicable. That's you're shedding innocent blood. There, there's that is you're entering into a and sacred it's place, it's and so if it's innocent and it dies without t- being shed, perhaps. Yeah, except that's that's where I'm going to say I wouldn't apply that to oh they're in the child because that would be basically a Pelagian oh the child is innocent there's no sin within them no so they're innocent there is in the sense that they've not done anything culpable to deserve death but not in the sense that oh they're I don't believe you you I think it would be stretching to say oh innocent means you're sinless and nothing wrong with it although I would apply it to shedding. Innocent blood is murder. Mur- they're entering into the womb and shedding innocent blood. But I wouldn't make that an, a statement that's qu- qualifying the the spiritual validity of that person, if that makes sense. So, well, it's it's after eight, and I I hope that if nothing else has given you some things to think about. Um, these were truths, honestly, that were taught in the church. You know, that was one of the shocking things to me. I, I was introduced to them, and I just felt like they were new. And then I found out these have been taught since the Apostle Paul, and it's it's been in this generation where you know it's just they're not being taught in the church. And so you can go to church your whole life and never hear these things. And it's like, what is this new teaching? And it's not. It's just that they've been neglected from Scripture. So let me pray. And if you have any further questions you weren't able to text, let me know, and I'll be happy to try to answer what I can. Father, thank You for this evening, and thank You for the doctrines of grace that magnify Your grace towards us. Thank You that You, in love, gave Your Son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You, you don't work for your salvation. You don't try to, I'm going to do good. No, you believe in Jesus Christ. 
and you will be saved. I pray that as we take that message to the world, that you'll bless it, that you'll allow us to be a part of of bringing in the people that you have appointed to salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.